Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, born in the mid-1800s in Edinburgh, but spent most of his time in England, was well-traveled, was a medical doctor, went to surgeon school, ended up doing specialty schools, was a, a, a ship's doctor and surgeon. He was an amazing man. He wrote a series of stories about Sherlock Holmes. Perhaps you've heard that name before, Sherlock Holmes and his sidekick Watson, Dr. Watson. And he's an interesting man because as I read about him this week, he was a Christian. He had Christian faith, but decided to let his Christian faith go in favor of being agnostic. Just a big term for I don't know what there is as far as supernatural things. But when World War I broke out and he lost several of his friends in the fighting, he turned to mysticism and spiritism through seances and mediums to be able to connect with his friends that he never got to say goodbye to. And he became a very devoted spiritist. And even though a man named Houdini, who you would know as the person who got out of lots of locks and different pieces of, of hardware debunked so many people who were mediums and doing these seances, Doyle doubled down. One young man growing up in the early 1900s outside London was my great uncle Cedric Sutherland. Cedric Sutherland, a right proper chap, loved Doyle and loved what Doyle believed. He himself became a spiritist with his wife, they had a black cat, no joke. And they certainly gathered people together to gain the wisdom of those who had died before to call up their spirit and to learn from them. This is called spiritism. Oftentimes, deeply seated in those who are very scientific, they're looking for revelation. Their hearts are wired for revelation and the things of God, knowing that there's more, but they can't prove it in their lab. Therefore, sometimes they go after the counterfeit instead of the real thing. And in this case, even as a young adult, my uncle Cedric was saying, here's these papers about what we believe. Do you want to read them? And this is not a new thing, consulting spirits. Not new to the 1800s or the 1900s. It was happening during Bible times. And it's in our passage today as we continue this series that I'm calling Lessons from Three Kings. We're, get, getting, we're to the end of King Saul today. We're going to put him in the grave today. Uh, he's gonna, uh, but he's going to mess up one last time to teach us a few lessons that we can learn from him. Because he goes after the disembodied spirit of the prophet Samuel. And... Saul's going to die in a very sad way. But David, instead of celebrating his death, shows great character and laments Saul. And though we won't have a lot of time to talk about lament today, I'll be writing about it in the briefing. So if you are not getting the regular blog from me through email or through Facebook, sign up and make sure you get that because I'll be writing about lament this week. So in the midst of this very sad ending to the first anointed king of Israel, I just feel like there's some really, really good lessons that we can learn. So I'm going to divide this in three parts, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I'm going to spend the majority of my time on point one. So for those of you who are watching your watch, don't panic. We're going to be fine. I'm going to call this first part, are you a good witch or a bad witch? 
So let's take a look. 1 Samuel 28. Now, before we get into the passage, I want you to ask yourself the question, who do you go to or what do you do when you're in crisis? When everything is falling apart, when you're in pain, you have loss, you're struggling, where do you go? What do you do? Most of you wouldn't say, I'm going to go find one of those machines out of the movie Big. I think it's called Zoltar Speaks, the Zoltar Speaks machine. Or, or maybe, maybe not, you know, consult a crystal ball or, or some other means. Uh, I'm probably not going to do those things to seek out advice on what to do in crisis. It's interesting, the dictionary lists over 30 different ways that supposedly you can hear from God, whether it's shapes in the clouds, leaves falling in certain patterns, the roll of dice, all sorts of things. We'll call this magic, for the lack of a better term. Now, Israel's theology simply, it was very simple. You are not to do this. Stay away from it at all cost. This was so different than every other nation that were surrounding Israel. They were all about this kind of connecting with the spirits and all kinds of magical, mystical things. And in fact, the laws about not going after these magic things aren't because they don't work. They were actually made by God because they do work. There is dark power. There is darkness. And there is a dark side, pun intended, where we have to be careful about what we tie into. Magic, if you will, is like human rebellion that with unlocked divine secrets making humans equal to God. So in Deuteronomy 18, it says this, when you enter the land, this is before Moses is giving the law here, saying, you know, when you enter the promised land that God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations here. Look out, don't be like them. Let no one be found among you who, and what does that mean? What does it look like? Sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. Practices divination or sorcery. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. Interprets omens. Engages in witchcraft. Yep, we're going to see that today. Casts spells. Who's a medium or spiritist who consults the dead. We're going to see that today. Anyone who does these things are detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations, those people before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. This is so important that you have this foundation before we get into the rest of our passage today. Because it was so clear, you do not go after the spirit world. It will not end well. You basically make yourself like God or you make yourself God in doing that. Only God gets to penetrate that veil and make those decisions. So Saul in his darkest hour, instead of turning to God, he's going to turn to the dark side. Let's take a look at 1 Samuel 28. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse 3. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him. He was buried in Ramah, his hometown, and Saul had banned from the land of Israel all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. Okay. The author is setting the stage for what's going to happen. He's letting us know that the only ways that the people of that day would get guidance from God were through prophets. Well, Samuel's dead and he's not partly dead. He's all dead because it says he's buried. Gad, the prophet Gad, he's already with David. So he's nowhere near Saul. 
And then the priests, that's another way that you hear from God. They have the Urim and the Thummim, these rocks that would glow and things like that, that would, would, would speak for God. But the priests all got killed by Saul here back in a few chapters back and wiped out 85%, 85 priests and their families in the city of Nob. There's only one priest left. Who is he? He's Abiathar. He's with David. So, well, we're not going to hear from him. Well, the only thing left is the dark side. But the author lets us know Saul has actually done one good thing, and that is that he banished and said, nope, no more of this, no more of this medium divining the spirit world kind of thing. So all of the ways to divinely help are gone? Question mark? Moving on, verse 4. The Philistines set up their camp at Shunem. And Saul gathered all the army of Israel and camped at Gilboa. So they're camped across from the bad guys. And when Saul saw the vast Philistine army, he became frantic with fear. So here's that old stronghold again of fear where Saul is, it's that old thing that keeps coming back. That's why you got to kill these things off completely. Verse six, he asked the Lord what he should do, but the Lord refused to answer him either by dreams or by sacred lots or by the prophets. So he finally decides to ask the Lord for guidance, but all the normal ways are not working. So Saul departs from his faith in Yahweh. He turns to false gods and and, and the spirits underneath the ground. And We see this today, actually, sometimes, where people will pray and they'll pray for their loved one who has cancer to be healed. And they have such faith and they're hoping for this great result. And when things don't go the way that they want them to go and there's a death or a failure or a loss or a pain, oftentimes we see people turn their back on God and embrace other things, especially if they feel like Christianity doesn't have any power. It's just a self-help program to make you feel good. It's a bunch of good ideas. Verse seven, Saul then said to his advisors, find a woman who is a medium so I can go ask her what to do. His advisors replied, "Um, there is a medium. There is a witch at Endor. No, no, not this Endor, which is the forest moon in Star Wars with the Ewoks. I'm sure that's what you were thinking. This Endor in Israel, it's such a cool name that George Lucas had to use it in his movies. What do we know about the Endor in Israel? It's about seven or eight miles from where Saul is set up on his front with opposing side, the the, the south side of this battle that's set up. In fact, In order to get to Endor to talk to this witch, he's got to go into enemy territory behind enemy lines. He's got to make a seven to eight mile over rough terrain hike to get there. Oh, by the way, he's going to do it at night. Oh, that's a great idea. Endor is just a, it's it's a small little village and it was never conquered by the Israelites when they than when they took the land. Judges 1 tells us that the Canaanites were determined to stay there. And so the tribe of Manasseh just decided to give up and not do anything. That's why we have this Canaanite woman who is practicing the traditional Canaanite magic, spiritism, dealing with connecting with the dead. And that's, we're totally seeing this here. And it was a small village, about 20 homes maybe. 
And uh, even the name of the city is a Hittite term uh, for the gods and appeasing the Hittite gods that lived under the ground. Now, sometimes they made these small figurines of the gods, of the Elohim, called teraphim. Now, this is important. It's going to come back later in our passage. Rachel, just to, just to give you an idea, if you're a Sunday school graduate, you might remember Rachel who marries Jacob in Genesis. She steals the household gods, the teraphim, these little figures, from her dad Laban. And when Laban comes looking for them, she sits on them and pretends that she doesn't have them. And it's a big deal. Then fast forwarding, even to Saul's household, there are teraphim in Saul's household. How do we know this? Because when David is escaping, Michael, his daughter, uses a, a, a teraphim, must have been a bigger one than these little guys, and puts it with some goat's hair and says, oh, he's ill. He's, he's sleeping in his bed. Kind of like the Alcatraz escape kind of a kind of situation, right? Where you've got this, this teraphim in there. So Saul knows, he even talks about it and he doesn't say, what are you doing with this teraphim? Like this has been, this Canaanite ancestor worship has because they didn't drive those people out has worked its way in and these Israelites are tempted to go back and forth between seeking God and guidance from God and seeking ancestor worship spirits and why does God say not to do it because stuff actually talks back it's not all charlatans like Houdini would say it ends up really having some power to it but it's dark power. So we've got this struggle for the Israelites that's real, this temptation on who am I going to get my divine guidance from? Am I going to get it from God or these, these other ways? And all these other people around me are doing it. And so, I, you know, and I think Saul even has, has some teraphim on the side just in case we've got to, you know, like the, the, the phone lines with God go dead. I, I got something else. That's what we're going to see. So back to our passage, verse 8. Now you got some cultural historical background. So Saul disguised himself by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. And then he went to the woman's home at night, accompanied by two of his men. I have to talk to a man who has died, he said. Will you call up his spirit for me? No, sidebar, if you have to wear a disguise just know that it's wrong, whatever you're doing, right? Verse 9. Are you trying to get me killed, the woman demanded? You know that Saul has outlawed all the mediums and all who consult the spirits of the dead. Why are you setting a trap for me? But Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord. He's swearing now and promised as surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you for doing this. Finally, the woman said, well, whose spirit do you want me to call up? Call up Samuel, Saul replied. So here's this Canaanite priestess, if you will. Call her usually the witch at Endor. I can imagine her with the you know, pointy hat and you know, the nose and things like that. They, they would normally dig a pit and uh, they would throw in some of these, these teraphim figurines to call on the gods. And then they would put some wine and some honey and some other liquids and even throw some money in the pit to conjure the spirit to come up. Now the language that Saul is using is exactly the same language to bring Samuel up by using a familiar spirit. This is the same language back in Deuteronomy 18 that says it's detestable to the Lord. Don't do it. But Saul is literally doing exactly what he says. You'll be driven out of the land if you do that. Here he is. He's stooped to this level. Verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, you've deceived me. 
You are Saul. Don't be afraid, the king told her. What do you see? So Saul's not seeing anything. She's seeing in the spirit or experiencing this and giving it to him verbally, right? I see a God coming up out of the earth, she says. Let's stop right there. Did she really mean God? Did she slip up? What's going on here? Well, first of all, let me, let me say this. I wrestled with this all week. Even my friends wrestled with this all week to try to figure out, is this really the disembodied Samuel coming up? Or is it a demonic, familiar spirit that's doing all this? And the more you study it, the more you don't know the answer. And that's okay. What I can tell you is this. The process with which Saul asks her to divine this spirit through a familiar spirit, a demonic spirit, is all bad. So we can all agree on that. Let's just go with that. And then you can do all the study. And if you ask me, I'll send you a couple PDFs to make you really go on the deep dive. So, so she sees a God coming out of the earth. This is literally the word Elohim. Well, that might be familiar to some of you Sunday school graduates. Uh, the word for God, that Elohim, it has a plural sense to it, but this is only one person coming up. And Really, to cut to the chase, Elohim really could be just defined as a spiritual being or a spirit being. Now, we're going to be learning much more about this. Devin and I are, are I think we're ready to go in, ready, well, mostly ready to go in uh, creating a video that talks about why Saul was told to kill the Amalekites completely. It actually has to do with, with this concept of gods because, spoiler alert, there is more than one God in the, in the Bible. But God, Yahweh, is the God over all other gods. What does that mean? He's the spirit being over all other spirit beings. If you want to learn more about this, here's your prerequisite one-on-one course, Bible Project. Search it, Spiritual Being Series. There's about five or six videos. They're pretty short. Probably within 40 minutes, you can look at all of them. But it'll begin getting you uh, acquainted with this idea because we're going to be stepping more into it. But so what's happening? She's seeing a spirit being come up. That's what's happening. A God is coming up, she said. All right, back to our passage, verse 14. What does he look like? Saul asked. Uh, He's an old man wrapped in a robe, she replied. Saul realized it was Samuel. How he knew that? I'm not sure. That's okay. And he fell to the ground before him. Verse 15. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back? Samuel asked Saul. Weird question that we won't get into. Uh, Because I'm in deep trouble, Saul replied. The Philistines are at war with me and God left has left me, won't reply to all, any of my messages. Uh, it won't reply by prophets or dreams. His voicemail's down. So I have called for you to tell me what to do. But Samuel replied, why ask me? Since the Lord has left you and has become your enemy. Here's the irony. Samuel is the mouthpiece for God. If God's not speaking, Samuel's not speaking. He's not gonna help either. Verse 17, the Lord has done just as he said he would. He has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your rival David. Do you remember him saying that in 1 Samuel 15? The Lord has done this to you today because you refuse to carry out his fierce anger against who? The Amalekites. What's more? The Lord will hand you and the army of Israel over to the Philistines tomorrow and you and your sons will be here with me in the grave. The Lord will bring down the entire army of Israel in defeat. So Samuel, if it is him, tells Saul he's going to die the next day along with his sons and be here in the grave with Samuel. 
Well, that's enough to be a little bit frightened, I would think. And Saul's already a fraidy cat. Verse 20. Saul fell full length on the ground. Not, not half length, but full length on the ground. Paralyzed with fright because of Samuel's words. He was also faint with hunger. For he had eaten nothing all day and all night. Typical Saul. He picks the wrong time to fast because he wants to look all spiritual. But really, it usually just ends up getting people killed. And that's kind of what had happened with his troops before. He just did a seven-mile hike to get there, and he's got to hike another seven miles back, and he's not eating? What? Verse 21. When the woman saw how distraught he was, she said, Sir, I obeyed your command at the risk of my life. Now, what to do what I say, and let me give you a little something to eat so you can regain your strength for the trip back. Oh, is she a good witch after all? She's going to get milk and cookies for him for the trip back. Hard no. The meal that she's offering is part of the ritual. It makes a covenant with the medium and it further connects your spirit to the familiar spirit or the demon. Even Saul, in the midst of his compromise, he's such a knucklehead, knows that this is not just a few snacks for the road. So what does he do? Verse 23, he's starving, but he refused. The men who were with him also urged him to eat. They don't have a clue what's going on. So he finally yielded, got up from the ground, sat on the couch, and the woman had been fattening a calf. So she hurried out and she killed it. She took some flour, kneaded it in the dough, and baked unleavened bread. Verse 25. And then she brought the meal to Saul and his men, and they ate it, and they went out into the night. What's happening here? Well, the Hebrew tells the whole story, and I'm such a nerd, I love looking into it. So the word for killing the fattened calf has nothing to do with slaying an animal for food. It's always referred to for cultic ritualistic slaughter. And this is why Leviticus 19 pairs the covenant meal, this eating this meal, with divination, with connecting with spirits in the underworld. Do not eat, it says, do not eat any of the meat with the blood still in it and do not practice divination or sorcery. They go together. So eating this food is actually gonna make a greater connection, give you dreams from the demonic to be able to go further. Because even if that was Samuel, let's say it was Samuel for a second, the process still opened him up to the demonic to be completely oppressed. He's already been oppressed his whole life. It's just more oppression now. Even the three verbs talking about baking the bread all have sacrificial meanings baked into them that we see in Leviticus 2. So what's going on here? Sacrifice and a sacrificial meal are key. We see it with Saul when He's called to kingship after a sacrificial meal in 1 Samuel 9. He's enthroned after a sacrifice in 1 Samuel 10 and 11. His first disobedience has to do with him doing the sacrifice instead of waiting for, for Samuel to do that in 1 Samuel 13. His second disobedience involves the excuse of sparing animals from the Amalekites for sacrifice. In first, that's 1 Samuel 15. And then here, his kingship is going to end after a sacrificial meal and a covenant with a false god. Saul's been on this, this trajectory for a long time. This is not a surprise that he ends here. How do I know this? Flashback, 1 Samuel 15. Samuel says something in the middle of his rebuke that tells us we're going here. Specific to the words. 
Now, taking a look at it, Samuel says, has the Lord, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Well, okay, that makes sense. But this part didn't at the time, but now it does. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. That's the same Hebrew word that we see in our passage here in chapter 28, and in Deuteronomy. Guess what? You're going to do this thing. And in subordination as iniquity and idolatry. Word for idolatry, teraphim, those little figurines that you throw in the pit to be able to call up the ancestors. Samuel's going, dude, you're on a slippery slope. It's going the wrong way. This is why the kingdom's going to get torn from you. Your heart is not fully for God. You're going to be replaced by a man after God's own heart. So sure, Saul gets rid of all the storefront palm readers and mediums, but he's a hypocritical leader. Because as soon as he needs one, he goes and finds one, even if it's against God's law, even if it's against the law that he made for the, for the kingdom. He presumes that he's above the rules. And it's so scary when we think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Oh no, I can handle that. I know that that's a really tempting thing for someone else, but not for me. Oh no, I'll just have just one more. Oh, you know, this isn't gonna turn into that. Oh, this relationship won't go in the wrong direction. Oh, it'll just be fine. If you're a leader, good leaders, here's the leadership axiom for you this morning. Good leaders avoid hypocrisy at all cost because hypocrisy is when we say one thing and we do another. I, I saw this, this great quote. Uh, Jane Adams says this, Read slowly. The essence of immorality is the tendency to make an exception of myself. Everybody else has got to follow the rules, but I don't have to. Anyway, that's my leadership moment for this morning. So Saul eliminates the counterfeit by getting rid of all of the mediums and things like that, but he doesn't nurture the real thing. He doesn't nurture the priests and the prophets. Instead, he kills them off or marginalizes them or pushes them away. Which leads me to a question for us. What are you doing to nurture hearing from God? What are you actively doing to make sure you're getting direction from him? Great discussion questions uh, that will be, if you're in a life group, you'll get those discussion questions. If you're watching on the stream, um, our moderator will put those questions in for you. Sometimes, we, we do the same thing. We focus so much on eliminating the sin or the addiction or, um, or the temptation, but we don't realize that we're not, still not satisfying whatever we were trying to fill, whatever that, that longing, that hunger, what was driving that problem. And, and, and when we go through this kind of rat wheel mentality, it's like the gospel is reduced down to a sin management program or uh, system. And sin, I believe, is really, it's, it's a hint that there's a lie you're believing and or there's a relationship problem with God. This is the way I boil it down today. If we don't pursue more and more intimacy and delight in our relationship with God, we'll think we're stopping a cycle of sin, but we'll be doomed to fall back into it in time. Our hearts are created for intimacy with God in pushing in more and delighting in him more. And when we do, 
the hole that created that sin or that temptation or that addiction then begins to get filled. Then you move toward freedom, not just moving through the cycle. There's a lot more to say about that, but that's all I have time to say about that today. In our culture, we have a hunger for the supernatural. We have a hunger for power, and that's really good. We see people running after things like crystals and channeling and horoscopes and reincarnation and all kinds of crazy things. And then they look at the church and go, where's the power? What's the deal? And if the church doesn't move in the love and the power of God, it won't, people will, will move on. It is not about wise and persuasive words, Paul says, but it's about the power of God working through us. And when this crisis with the Philistines comes up, Saul is unprepared because he has not consistently nurtured his relationship with God. If you are faithful to nurture your relationship with God, when you move into crisis, you'll know what his voice sounds like. You will know who you can turn to. You'll know who to pray with. You'll know where to get counsel. But if you are only a foxhole prayer person, we're like, oh, I'm about to die. Oh God, I need you. And he's happy to answer any prayers. However, it's really hard to hear him if you're not in the practice. One last thing on this point. I feel like a lot of times we feel entitled to God's blessings. We think if I just go to church, uh, if I give money to the poor, uh, I support the Jesus Center, I tithe at the church, I, I did the work day. I mean, that was great. And I may do all these things and I'm putting deposits in so that it's like my, uh, my good deeds deposit, we'll call it. And so then when I read a little extra help from God, then he's going to answer the phone a lot quicker or no, bad things won't happen if I just would have done more good things beforehand to earn blessings. It doesn't work like that. But I'm here to tell you, talking and praying for people over the last 29 years of ministry, more people are disillusioned when bad things happen to them because they don't believe that, but I'm living right. Bad things shouldn't happen to me, but bad things happen to good people in the world. And God works through pain and he works through loss and he matures us more through pain. Pain is his megaphone to speak to us. Lewis says he whispers to us in our pleasures and he he shouts to us in our pain. If you don't have pain in your life, you will not be rich and deep and hearty and ready for whatever's coming next. So it's not quid pro quo that if I do this, God, you're going to do this for me. And I think it's subtle, but I want to bring it up and I want you to be thinking about it. Okay, now we'll go quicker. Second point, can you have a good death? I'm going to read the passage here. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation today. I'm usually in the NIV, but I was on drugs, uh, pain meds when I decided to use this. So that's what we're doing. Full disclosure, I'm not on pain meds anymore. Verse one. Now the Philistines attacked Israel and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. And the fighting grew very fierce around Saul and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. 
Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come and run me through and taunt me and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. Good job, buddy. I'm proud of you. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. Now, when the Israelites on the other side of the Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled. So the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. The next day, when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off Saul's head as a trophy and stripped off his armor. And then they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in the pagan temples and to the people throughout the land of Philistia. And they placed his armor and his head in the temple of the Ashtoreths. And they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bethshean. Bethshean is not far. It's close there by the Jezreel Valley. It's a place that actually uh, Linda and I got to visit in the mid-90s when we were in Israel. And so there's extensive archaeological digs there and it's just amazing, this city. It was, it was generally a Canaanite city. It never really was taken over because they had iron chariots and so therefore that was too scary for the Israelites to actually trust God that he could overcome iron chariots. So Bethshean, I'm, I'm walking up the, the tell, the mountain, and there's all these pot shards. Um, and this one was sticking out of the ground. And he said, you know, this, is, this strata is only from about the fourth century. So, you know, it's pretty much garbage to us if it's not a thousand years old. So, or more than 2,000 years old. So, um, you know, you can look. So I'm playing archaeologist. I'm like, I've always wanted to dig up dinosaur bones, but this is more fun. So, and I pull this out. <gasps> and I have the neatest piece of garbage ever. It's got a little rim on it, which means it's man-made. And then I flipped it around. By the way, the picture's on the screen, so you can see it. It's got paint on it. <gasps> this is so cool. And now it sits in my bedroom in the uh, drawer. But this is a city where I can imagine when I was there, I'm like, man, I wonder where the walls were. I wonder where Saul's body and his son's bodies were tacked up. And what that was like to take those off the wall and how rough that job was. And who does it? Verse 11. But when the people of Jabesh Gilead, I don't know if you remember those guys, heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their mighty warriors traveled through the night to Bethshean and took the bodies of Saul and his sons down from the wall. They brought them to Jabesh where they burned the bodies uh, verse 13, and then they took the bones and buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted for seven days. Saul's finest hour was 1 Samuel 11 when he first is becoming king. He rallies the troops of Israel. He rides in and saves the city of Jabesh Gilead. They were gonna get their right eyes all poked out or they were gonna be killed. And Saul saves the day at the 11th hour. And they, so they remember that and they take him down. And they give him a very modest burial. They're just trying to bring honor to the situation. I think we can all agree, perhaps Saul died 
poorly. I had a lunch recently where the topic was, it ended up being, what does it look like to die well? With these pastors who you may recognize, Gaylord Enns, Gil Wesley, Dave Workman, all former pastors. They're still, you're always pastor, you're always a pastor, you're always pastoring, but. And then us younger guys, myself, Brian Myers, who is the lead pastor at Grace, and Jeff Young, who is at Life Church. And I wish I could tell you everything that was said because the conversation was rich and it behooved you to listen more than speak. And what I heard was this. I heard about several books and things that would be resources uh, in this way. I heard about Dallas Willard, who is a great author and teacher, and he's with Jesus now, but uh, he would pray for, for people as he was speaking for a radiant life and a radiant death. And the radiant life part makes sense, but what does it mean to have a radiant death? Can you die well? Well, Gary Black Jr. and Dallas ended up putting a book together uh, chronicling how Dallas made the transition from life to death. And it's called Preparing for Heaven. Uh, we'll also put the, the links on Facebook as well as um, in, in the chat for you, those of you who are online, but uh, beautiful pictures of what it looks like to finish well and to look forward to your real home in heaven as a Christian. Billy Graham wrote a book uh, and he's uh, early 90s, 92 years old and uh, called Nearing Home. And he says, everybody wants to tell you how to live for Christ, but no one has ever shown me how to die for Christ. And then one of my favorite Celtic Christian writers, Ray Simpson, this is an old book from the early 2000s uh, called Before We Say Goodbye, Preparing for a Good Death. I was reading this recently and made everybody in my life nervous, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great read uh, by a godly man who's actually still alive. And um, I recommend um, Ray's book. Um, it's available on Amazon as well. So we're going to talk more about dying well when we're saying goodbye to David. He dies a little bit better, but not all that much better than, than Saul. Um, but let's all agree, Saul doesn't die well. But I'm praying that we will be fin people who finish this Christian life well. And we'll talk a lot about that as we continue to, to push into our discipleship pathway and, and really try to build habits, which creates a culture of finishing well. C.S. Lewis said, there is no greater or urgent task, task in this life than to learn how to die well. And as strange as this sounds, it must be front of mind for us. So can you die well? The answer is yes, and I've seen it before. Well, last section, I'm gonna summarize this one for the sake of time. This last section, I'm calling it, can lament create depth in us? 2 Samuel 1 is the story of this Amalekite soldier who shows up after the death of Saul. He shows up to David and he tells the story that he knows that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And in verse 5, David asks the question, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? A very good question. And so he tells the story that he happens upon Saul and he says, how can I help you? And he says, who are you? He says, I'm an Amalekite. Oh, wait, I was supposed to wipe you out before. And he begged me, come over here and put me out of my misery for I'm in terrible pain and I want to die. This is all a lie, by the way, because there's a passage in First Chronicles and then the, the passage that we just read that tells us the real story. This guy's trying to suck up to David. 
So verse 10, he says, so I killed him. The Malachite told David. How do David and his men respond? David's now got a clear path to the throne. David has been on the run for years because Saul has been trying to kill him. You would think maybe he would celebrate when Saul dies. David is a man after God's own heart. He laments. David and his men, verse 11, tore their clothes in sorrow. And when they heard the news, they mourned and they wept and they fasted all day for Saul and his son, Jonathan, and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel because they had all died by the sword that day. Love the character of David. And this guy who's lying, he represents the opposite of David's heart. He, uh, he represents someone who would be willy-nilly ready to kill the Lord's anointed. And David has had opportunities several times and a lot of reasons to do it in our minds, in our human minds. But he says, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And the Lord taught him those, those lessons. And if you haven't heard the last few messages, go back and listen to those and how David learns this lesson. So then David says to the young man who brought the, the, the news, you know, where are you from? You're an, an Amalekite? You're, you weren't afraid to kill the Lord's anointed? Um, off with his head. He's done. David says to his men, kill him. And so they killed him. They thrust the sword through the Ammonite and killed him. You've condemned yourself, David said, for you yourself confessed that you killed the Lord's anointed. So, sad, weird plot twist. But notice this, verse 17. Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan. And he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. Not only am I going to write this song and sing it myself, but I'm going to make sure all of you learn it and sing it too. It's known as the Song of the Bow. And it's recorded in the book of Jashar, which is the book of the upright. And so what I've decided to do is I'm going to read Eugene Peterson's uh, version of this paraphrase from the message. And because he is a modern day poet and because this is beautiful poetry and lament, I felt like that was an appropriate way. So I'm just going to read the song through to you so you can hear it and experience it. The words will be on the screen. Oh, oh, gazelles of Israel struck down on your hills, the mighty warriors fallen, fallen. Don't announce it in the city of Gath. Don't post the news in the streets of Ashkelon. Don't give those coarse Philistine girls one more excuse for a drunken party. No more dew or rain for you hills of Galboa and not a drop from springs and wells for there are the warriors' shields were dragged through the mud. Saul's shield left there to rot. Jonathan's bow was bold. The bigger they were, the harder they fell. Saul's sword was fearless. Once out of the scabbard, nothing could stop it. Saul and Jonathan, beloved, beautiful, together in this life, together in death, swifter than plummeting eagles, stronger than proud lions. Women of Israel, weep for Saul. He dressed you in finest cottons and silks. Spared no expense in making you elegant. The mighty warriors fallen, fallen in the middle of the fight. Jonathan struck down on your hills. Oh, my dear brother, Jonathan, I'm crushed by your death. Your friendship was a miracle wonder. Love far exceeding anything I've known or anything I hope to know. The mighty warriors fallen, fallen, and the arms of war broken to bits. I just want to end with a few words about lament. 
And then I'm going to write more in uh, the blog this week. So if, if you haven't joined our, um, our list, our mailing list, you can do that um, through the website. The idea of lament. About 70% of the Psalms are laments, much like this song that David composes and teaches to the people and commands them to sing. But how should we understand lament? I think lament exists because of the threat of a breakdown in our relationship with God. I have all this pain, I have all this loss, I have all these questions, I have all these struggles. And it perhaps is straining my understanding and my ability to walk with God. And lament is not just saying what's wrong, like complaining. Rather, in the midst of unhappiness, there's a seeking to reconnect and recover communication with God. Because oftentimes in these kinds of moments, God seems silent. And so lament is calling out to God in the midst of that. I love this uh, Matt Erickson quote says this, With complaint, we practice the presence of our problems. But with lament, we practice the presence of our God. As I was reading a, a few scholarly papers on lament this week, I kind of boil it down to this. Lament is the beginning of giving voice uh, or language to those who weep in silence. Even those whose voices have been muted. So it's expressing pain and worry and doubt and sorrow and grief and injustice and God's silence. God, why are you so silent? And this is what we see from David in so many of his Psalms. He's like, why aren't you talking to me? Which is ironically what we were seeing with Saul who couldn't hear God either. So it's the beginning of giving voice to this and letting it out. But it's, the second thing is it also begins the process of hoping that God is going to be on your side. He's going to come through. He's going to provide that his, his voice is going to return and his favor is going to return when you're in distress in this life and in the next. So as you lament, baked into this is hope rising that God who knows me, who's with me in the midst of this pain is, is literally going to come when I call out to him. So David, who lived passionately and exuberantly, he also laments passionately. And this is really all about expressing the pain of our losses and our pain, uh, losses and our pain to God, with God. Lament bridges is a bridge from life to death back to life again. Lament notices and attends, savors and delights in the details, imagines relationships, pain entered into, accepted and owned can be poetry. Poetry is our most personal use of words. It's our way of entering the experience, not just watching it happen to us and inhabiting it as our home. So how do we lament? How do we express ourselves? What could this look like for us? And we'll talk more about it because it's a large topic that I believe we don't do well as a culture at all. But it's all about trying not to numb your pain. It's all about expressing how you feel about the pain, walking with God through the pain, inviting him into the midst of your pain, understanding and allowing hope to rise for the future. That this will not stay this way and that there is a, a hope and a future to be grasped onto. And instead of numbing the pain and, and moving toward things that will comfort and soothe and, and somehow take away the pain, we actually need to feel the pain 
and walk with God through it and then give words to it. So for you, it may not be writing a song. It might be journaling. It might be praying. It might be a spoken word. A number of different ways for us to be able to get what's in our heart out and begin expressing that. Well, one last recommendation. I got lots of recommendations today. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Leap Over a Wall. It's got cute birds on it. Um, I have picked it up midway through this um, series. It's largely about David's life and uh, from a devotional standpoint, if you like the message and he's the one who uh, writes the paraphrase of the message, I think you will really love this book. It goes right along with what we've been talking about. I highly recommend it. Um, it's on Amazon. So Leap Over a Wall with Eugene Peterson. Um, and um, that last quote was from him. And so more on that in writing this week. But uh, would you stand? I'd love to pray for you. Thanks for hanging in with me a couple extra minutes. I'm sure I was not as efficient with time as normal. But it's such good stuff, you guys. I'm so thankful for God's word. I hope you're falling in love with the Old Testament again. I hope you're falling in love with how rich the stories are and how many lessons there are and, and how much we can totally relate to these people. I'm totally just like them. So Jesus, help us to step into a place of learning more from your word, get diving into it, finding the helps that we need, getting the books that we can read to help us really fully grasp these things. Lord, help us to be a people who really seek out your voice and your guidance. Lord, allow us to prepare for our death by living a good life so that we have a good death. And in the midst of our loss, would you teach us to enter into lament? Thank you that it creates a culture that's deep and rich. Help us to live out that culture in our church family. And so I pray a blessing on those who are in the house as well as those watching the stream and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. We have prayer on the way out in the chapel. Make sure you grab your trash if you're in the house. And if you're on the stream, we'll see you next week.